Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Good evening, I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, recorded live tonight on the Upper West Side of New York City. We have got an audience full of smart people, and we will invite them up one at a time to tell us things that are interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. If it goes as planned, we'll all be a little bit smarter by the time we're through. Joining me tonight as co-host, would you please welcome Washington Post columnist and all-around clever person, Alexandra Petri. Hi. Hi, Alexandra. So happy you are here. I'm thrilled to be here. No matter how thrilled you are, we're thrilled her. Alexandra, let's see what we know about you so far. We know you write the Compost blog for The Post and that you wrote a book called A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. We know you're a master of the pun and other word trickery. We know you've been publicly denounced by Rush Limbaugh as <laughs> B.I. Itchy, and that you responded by offering to buy Mr. Limbaugh a sandwich, which is very sweet of you, I believe. So, yes. Alexandra Petri, tell us something we don't yet know about you. Oh, man. Well, I guess I, my best use of Valentine's Day ever, and the only time I tried to pay hooky from school, was in my senior year of high school, George Lucas was visiting D.C. So I, like, ducked out of class, and I, like, got up there, and I was able to stand within, like, a few feet of him and, like, get a whiff of his distinctive plaid. And, uh, and I said, Happy Valentine's Day, Mr. Lucas, very softly and excitedly, but I don't think he heard me. That... That is the creepiest sweet story I've ever heard, I have to say. <laughs> Alexandra, we're so happy to have you here tonight for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it's going to work. Guests will come on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. You and I will hear them out, we'll ask some questions, and eventually our live audience will pick a winner. Victory will be based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? Now, to help... With that all-important, demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker, the deeply inimitable A.J. Jacobs. A.J. is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Year of Living Biblically, which is currently being turned into a TV show called By the Book. His forthcoming book is called It's All Relative, AJ, you are a pretty accomplished fellow. Uh, I'm right curious, what, you, Steve. what would you put at the very top of your list of accomplishments? A couple of years ago, I was the answer to number one down in the New York Times crossword oh, puzzle. Which, and at first I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. Uh, <laughs> But then my brother-in-law pointed out that it was a Saturday puzzle, which ah. is the hard puzzle, <laughs> and the clues are so obscure, no one is supposed to know them. He basically told me that uh, until I'm in the Monday or Tuesday puzzle, uh. I'm still a, a five-letter word starting with L-O-S and ending in E-R. Oh. He, yeah, he's tough. He's tough. Well, Thanks you, for the uh, sympathy. Like you that. are uh, a W-E-I-N-E-R in our book. Wait, I'm a bad speller. You are a W-I-N-N-E-R in our book, A.J. Jacobs. Um, we're very, you, very happy to have you here, as always. Uh, I think it's time to play. Tell me something I don't know. Our theme tonight is called Womb to Tomb, Things We Don't Know About the Various Chapters of Life. Would you please welcome our first guest, Ross Benish.
So Ross, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. I'm the author of the book, The Sex Effect, which examines hidden relationships between sex, economics, politics, and religion. Okay, sex sounds like a, a pretty good topic for womb to tomb. I am ready. So are Alexandra Petri and AJ Jacobs. So what do you know, Ross, that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? So many people don't realize that monogamy was initially adopted as a military tactic <laughs> because it was Greco-Roman strategists and not philosophers or religious adherents who embedded this into our society. And they did it because it was an effective tool for building an empire. So they started laws built around putting one person with one other person. And they wanted to keep that in line because it had all these social level effects. Interesting social part level of that, effects like... Like crime rates and... Really? Uh, we, yeah. We know this for real or... Uh... Yeah, anthropologists have studied uh, the history of monogamy pretty thoroughly. And polygynous societies have much higher crime rates because if you have a lot of single men around, uh, that's not good news. Now, Ross, um, most people assume that monogamy grew out of or is associated with Christianity. Is that... Well, it's associated with Christianity, but it wasn't originated with Christianity. So legal monogamy was around before Christ was born, and it was bred in these Greco-Roman societies. But Christianity became popular in Rome. So what happened was Rome fell, and Christianity adopted its monogamy principles and allowed it to spread to many places that Rome never reached. And of course, Christianity's monogamy is much different because in Rome you could have sex with prostitutes and concubines and slaves, and Christianity did not say that was cool. No. Because initially when you describe this, you're like tactical monogamy. I'm like, how do you deploy monogamy like on the field of battle? Was there also the idea that you don't want single men in your army because they're going to be running around trying to, you know, get happy? <laughs> well, there, there is the idea that you don't want single men running around because if they're unsatisfied and they are looking to mate and they don't have that chance, they may go to another nation where they do have that uh, chance. Uh. And there have been some scholars who have speculated that these single men, if they're very sexually frustrated, will have a greater probability of overthrowing the empire. Uh. But uh. that's hearsay a little bit. I mean, I, this feels very, like, judgy, where it's like, if the men don't have a woman, they're going to overthrow the empire. It's like, is this on me now somehow? <laughs> like, it's my responsibility to, like, keep the empire in its position... Well, let me ask you this, Ross. Okay. Is, is the idea that if the soldiers are monogamous and therefore the family unit is thought to be more credible or legitimate, does that mean they'll be, you know, they'll either fight differently or be more loyal to the cause? Yeah, I don't know if there's a whole lot of research on that. But one thing that is very interesting with this is that they, um, if they're monogamous, they tend to have a lot higher parental investment. They just tend to be a lot... Um, more into their domestic situation and, and less likely to commit crime and run around and do all these other things that would be detrimental to their collective society. Um, there were lots of slaves around back then. Did slaves yep. marry? No. Uh, in the Roman societies, slaves were more along the lines of like concubines. So the initial days of legal monogamy weren't the way we have legal monogamy. They were monogamous in principle, but these men still often had slaves on the side because women had very few rights in these societies. Oh, so like monogamish, but not in like a fun Dan Savage <laughs> yeah. way, just like in the like, oh, yeah. you get a special asterisk because mm -hmm. you're a man. Yeah. <laughs> 
does your knowledge of this come from writing this book about sex and politics and economics and so on? Yeah, it came from all the research I did putting this book together and reading a lot of anthropology and evolutionary psychology papers. So I have to say, for a book about sex, the one that you've chosen to tell us about was rather not sexy. I mean, not that I didn't enjoy this very uh, much, yeah. but um, did you learn anything else that we don't know, perhaps, about sex? Um, well, that's a vague concept. I, there's all sorts of ways you can go with this. Uh, yeah, tell me sex thing I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one sex thing that I found to be very interesting. The, the Council of Nicaea was a huge event in the history of Christianity. It's the first major council where they put together this creed. And the first canon in the Nicaea Council documents is about preventing priests who have castrated themselves from becoming priests. So if a man intentionally again, castrated again, himself... Not sexy. That's the sexiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so uh, A.J. Jacobs, Ross Benish, author of The Sex Effect, which apparently has no sex in it, the entire book, <laughs> uh, but it's got castration and military monogamy. Uh, so um, first of all, how legit is the uh, military Greco-Roman roots of monogamy? Well, first of all, uh, full disclosure, I, I, I wrote the foreword to uh, Ross's book. So oh, my uh, goodness. I thanked his parents for having sex to produce Ross. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> so uh, I am, I'm not an objective fact checker. Uh, I will say that the, uh, that the theory that monogamy came from Roman military law is a wonderful, I love it. There are other theories. Uh, there's another that says that the shift came when humans started farming and they wanted to, monogamy would help keep the property in the family. Uh, regardless, what is definitely true is that the Bible was not totally pro-monogamy, especially the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, King David, you might remember, he had at least seven wives. And Solomon had 700 wives. Apparently that wasn't enough. He also had 300 concubines. So uh, to me, this is one of the great miracles of the Bible. It's a good round number. Well, it's just the the time management that uh, had to go into. (laughs) Thank you, AJ, and thank you, Ross Benish. Great job. Well done. Well, that was fun. Um, shall we bring another uh, victim to the stage? Would you please welcome Sarah Rottenberg? Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. What do you do? Uh, I'm the associate director of the Integrated Product Design Program at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm also the co-founder of Leah Diagnostics which is producing a flushable pregnancy test. A flushable pregnancy test. So what do you have for us? So I'm also not going to talk about the sex part, um, but I am going to tell you that... Because we had our fill with Ross. Obviously. (laughs) Um, Current pregnancy tests are 99% accurate, and the basic technology that tests for the hormone HCG in urine hasn't changed much in decades. But what has changed is that tests have become unnecessarily complicated. About a quarter of the tests that are sold today are digital, and they have more computing power in them than the Apple IIc. Um, They also have batteries in them, and despite the fact that the instructions for the tests say that you should remove the batteries before throwing the test out, 0% of the women that we surveyed actually remove the battery from their tests. 
Um, so what this innovation has also not done is provide for the privacy problem of pregnancy tests. Um, when we talk to women and survey women, we find that nine out of 10 women say that they want to control who knows whether they're pregnant or not pregnant. Meaning because you can't flush it, because you have to throw it away. You it gets, have to throw it away. It gets seen. Now, why are the tests so complicated? Is it in the interest of the firms that produce them to make them more complicated to sell them for more money if, it's not, if the technology is not necessary? That's definitely part of it. I mean, um, you know, we're always looking for the newest improved thing, and I think companies are driven to create something new just for newness sake. Um, I think part of it is also that, I don't know if you've ever taken a pregnancy test. I haven't, them. no. Okay. Oh, you weren't talking, you were talking, sorry, Alexander. It's an experience no, everyone should have, yeah. 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 They're After actually the show, guys. No, I'm a kidding. little bit hard to read, and so these digital tests say pregnant or not pregnant, so you don't have to look for lines. Uh. But what most people think they're also kind of more technologically advanced, but they're really not. It's basically a computer that reads the lines for you. So you started a firm that makes a flushable kit, test kit, yes? yes. What's it made of? What's it look like? So it looks a little bit like a pad, um, and it's made out of paper. And so it uses the same chemicals, but they're put on paper. But if you flush it in the toilet, it will dissolve. Hmm. That makes so much sense. Why has that not been around? I, like, I was in an APP, like an Obon Pound restroom, and there was a taken pregnancy test there in the stall with me. And I was yes. like, someone wants to keep the control of who knows she's pregnant wow. better. And you looked seem... at the results. Yeah, exactly. You did she look did, at, she you didn't did? have security. It's way more common than you think. So people think it's just like teenage girls who are having sex and don't want their parents to know. But there's a lot of reasons that women don't want people to know. So I've seen them in the, te- in the trash can in the New Jersey Turnpike bathroom. Seems like going really far out of your way. Maybe it's to deal with the monogamy problem. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you, Alexandra asked, why has it taken so long or why is this the first? Can I, may I hazard a guess? Sure. I wonder if maybe all the big kind of, you know, computerized digital versions were designed by more male dominant kind of people. That is our hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Actually, the first at-home pregnancy test was designed by a woman. Um, but since then, it's kind of been taken over by these firms that are dominated by men. Um, it's actually really hard to do a flushable test. Um, and there's also all kinds of supply chain reasons that it would be hard for a company who makes current tests to say, we're going to do things completely differently. The shift to producing the test on cellulose versus nitrocellulose, which is what they're on today on plastic, um, just requires different materials, a different way of making the test. And so it's not a small change that the companies would have to make. And, you know, companies don't like to make big changes. Mm-hmm. What is your accuracy versus the others? Exactly the same. We are over 99% accurate. Mm-hmm. That's obviously, you know, if it's not accurate, it doesn't matter if it's flushable. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so if they're mostly some form of digital or wired or whatever, um, the Internet of Things is kind of becoming real. Are a lot of those pregnancy tests sending their data somewhere? There is a new test made by First Response that sends its data through Bluetooth to your phone. Oh. Right? The audience Um, likes that idea. It seems really creepy to me. Obviously, I have a point of view about privacy that might be different. But in this case, it seems a little egregious. And you, um, you're a designer. What other kind of stuff do you do? Uh, So mostly I teach. Um, My students work on things as diverse as uh, gloves for elder gardeners that help um, give them the hand strength to continue to garden for as long as they want. Or really, they're like bionic gloves. Yeah, really. Yeah, they're cool. Yeah. Um, another team of students who started a company is working on a uh, soft robotic 
pumping bra that helps women who are breast pumping deliver more milk for their babies. It acts more like a baby axe than a breast pump. I feel like if men kept evolving the design, it would just be like, it's a helicopter also, and it talks to your microwave. And it's like, this is not the functionality I needed improved. No. <laughs> so that's the, the test itself. What about the packaging? Yeah, so the packaging, uh, we were, are working on creating something that is as small as possible and as discreet as possible. Um, on the retail shelf, people need to be able to find it. Um, so we're playing around with how do we hit both of those metrics. Gotcha. AJ Jacobs, this is so interesting. Sarah Rottenberg is telling us about uh, kind of building a better pregnancy test. What can you tell us? Well, it absolutely checks out. Uh, And I wanted to add that women were not the only ones who benefited from the invention of the home pregnancy test. There was another big winner, which was rabbits. Uh, Because until 1968, the most popular pregnancy test was called the rabbit test. The doctors would inject the woman's urine into a live rabbit, wait a few days, kill the rabbit, and then examine the rabbit's ovaries. So uh, it was moderately accurate, but obviously not so pleasant for the rabbits or, or the frogs. Frogs were also used. I was uh. not prepared for what you were about to say. <laughs> AJ Jacobs, thank you. And Sarah Rottenberg, thank you so much. It is time for a quick break. When we return, more guests. We will make Alexandra Petri tell us some things we don't know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com and follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our theme tonight is Womb to Tomb, and my co-host is Alexandra Petri. Before we get back to our guests, Alexandra, I've got some lightning round questions written especially for you. Are you ready? Oh, boy. Alexandra, we know you are a word lover, so tell us, what's a zugma? And give us some examples, please. It comes from the Greek for yoke, and it's when you use one word twice, like, if you say, like, she stirred my soul and my risotto, like, <laughs> you're, it's doing the function of two different things. Egg yolk, oxen yolk. Oh, oxen yolk. Uh-huh. The best okay. kind of yolk. Uh, any other zugmas <laughs> I'm floating a, around your head? Uh, he, he killed the, the mood and his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Alexander, we know that in the age of Trump, you have made a lot of people mad in addition to Rush Limbaugh. Do you offer to buy sandwiches for all your haters? No, but I, I, I should. Did you ever hear from Rush Limbaugh about your sandwich offer? I did not, which, and I don't want to be mean to Rush Limbaugh, but he seemed like somebody who would be interested in getting a sandwich. <laughs> Alexandra, we know you are a Civil War buff, uh, so tell us something we don't know about the Civil War, please. Okay. <laughs> Robert E. Lee like, wrote this very like, sexy letter to his female friend to ask her how her wedding night had gone, being like, how did you disport yourself, my child? Did it go like a torpedo cracker on Christmas morning? No. A, first of all, a torpedo cracker? Pachum. Alexandra, we've heard that you have a hard time saying no, which once led you to join a cult. Uh, If you started your own cult, what would that cult be? It would be a a cult of people, like people who would bring cats to my house. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Uh, Quickly, this or that, Amazon.com or bookstore? Bookstore. Got to smell those books. Yep. You like bookstores. Melania or Madonna? Mm, Melania, right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Because why? B- because her coats speak for her, and I like that. Mm. Monogamy or George Lucas? 
George Lucas. Mm. George Lucas or Jeff Bezos? Ooh, uh, monogamy. (laughs) (laughs) Alexandra Petri, nicely done. All right, it is time to get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next guest, Andrew Meredith. Come on up, Andrew. Hey, Andrew, uh, tell us about yourself. What do you do? I'm a writer, uh, and I used to work in the funeral business in Philadelphia. Mm, the tomb and yeah. of things. So, um, Andrew, um, keeping in mind our theme, Womb to Tomb, what do you have for us tonight? Well, in 2006, I was working at a crematory, and a flatbed truck arrived one afternoon, and on the back of the flatbed truck was... Uh, a concrete vault with a casket inside that had been buried in 1948. Uh, So my thing to tell you that you don't know is about the amazing preservative effects of embalming. Ah, okay. So this was an exhumed body that had been buried since 1948? Yes. And and why did they bring it to you? What needed to happen next? (laughs) Because this man's wife had just died in 2006. Okay. And she was being cremated, and Uh, the family wanted them both cremated and put in the same urn. So wait a second, 1948 to 2006. Yeah. So... Monogamy, am I right? All right, so you're just minding your own business at the crematory one day. Just hanging out. And uh, can I just back up a little bit? How'd you get there? Yeah, I wrote a memoir about this. I got into the business in 1998, doing house calls with my father, Uh picking up people who had died and taking them to funeral homes. Okay, yeah. By the uh, way, when I die, I definitely want Andrew to be the one to talk to my family. Right. Because that voice is so soothing. It's a great funeral (laughs) voice. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I worked as a remover, and then so I started. So a remover works for whom? Crematory? Te- technically, the removers worked for a limousine service that owned the hearses that would do the pickups. No way. Oh, yeah. really? That's, you, is that like a legal problem that yeah. happened? Or no, what's it was just specific to our little area, This who owned the, the cars. Hey, yeah. can I ask you something? I once read that the first hearses um, were ambulances because they were the only vehicles big enough to haul a body Mm -hmm. and that basically you would call the ambulance and if things didn't go right then you just kind of (laughs) drive in the other direction to the other place is that it's called optionality (laughs) it's a convertible Uh, okay so wait so you're at the crematory and a truck shows up with a body inside a concrete, it was the whole thing they took out. Yeah, the concrete vault that okay. had been in the ground came to you know preserve the casket on the ride. Okay, know. what happens next? So the casket is taken out with a there's a little crane that takes the casket out of this concrete box and drops it onto our little truck. We were dreading what we were going to find inside because we thought it was going to be completely horrifying and mm. gory inside. Mm-hmm. And smelly, presumably? Yes. Or? I mean, the smell that we anticipated, uh, you know, would have lived up to the worst smells we had ever experienced, which for anybody in that business is pretty bad. How would you describe the worst smell you've ever smelled? Oh, gosh. 
I love how you're like, this will be a very sexy episode, and it's like the worst <laughs> smell that's ever happened. The dead body from 1948. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you get it on your, uh, what do you call it? Not a gurney. A church a gr- truck. Okay, so you got the old, you've got the old coffin yeah. on the church truck now. Yeah, but we wanted to, we basically need to look inside to make sure there's nothing now, in there minute. that will. Wait a minute, wait a yeah. minute. You needed to or you wanted to, Andrew? <laughs> well, I'm telling you, it was both. But we, we do need to. Uh, you don't. You just never know what's in there. Like firecrackers. <laughs> what, what would be yeah. bad? Stowaways. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would not believe the things that people put in caskets. You know? I, I'm curious. I, I to want know. to believe. Yeah. Well, I mean, most often a six pack. Really? You know? yeah. yeah, six pack of cans, and that'll just blow up in your face because. I mean, part of the, the process of the cremation is you have to open the, the door of the crem- cremation machine to see how it's going, you know? So if something's no, going to... No, we don't ex- know. We don't know any of this. You know. So if something's going to explode, then you are in the line of fire. Okay, so you need to open this thing to make sure, I guess, that, you know, who's supposed to be in it is in it yeah. on one level and also to make sure there's nothing that's going to damage your equipment, yeah? Yeah. And also because you want to do. Yeah. Okay, so what'd you find? We found a perfectly preserved man who looked like he could have sat up and shaken our hands. He had a, a, a houndstooth check blazer on, which I'll always remember. He had a perfectly knotted tie. He had a mustard-colored shirt. He had, still had the part in his hair. Hmm. He was uh, perfect. So wow. other than uh, attesting to the fact that whoever did the job on him was yeah. good, yeah. right? What about the science of it? I mean, is this what embalming always does, can do? This is what embalming can do, um, especially if you have a casket that will keep the body dry. And now about 80% of the caskets in the U.S. that are buried are made of steel. But you're better protected in a steel one? Probably you're better protected in a steel one, yeah. But it just seems a little funny to me. Yeah. I would like to go away. You know, I just want to go on the ground in a burlap sack, you know. Um, did you ever involve... Oh, no, I'm not a funeral director. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just, I'm an English major. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But um, what can you tell us about the history of embalming? Well, embalming caught on in the U.S. at the very beginning of the Civil War. So this Colonel Elmer Ellsworth who had worked at Lincoln's law firm, was killed in a raid in Arlington, Virginia, on a hotel that was flying a huge Confederate flag. So uh, this Dr. Thomas Holmes, who a lot of people call the father of American embalming, embalmed Ellsworth, and Lincoln went to see Ellsworth's body and was so impressed that he called Holmes in and said, can you Hmm. train battlefield embalmers? because we're going to have people dying from all over, and they want to send them home for viewings. Now, I seem to recall having read once that, that embalming kind of boomed during the... Well, first of all, I thought the Egyptians embalmed and all that. Obviously, a different uh, set of chemicals or whatnot. Formaldehyde yeah. is what... Formaldehyde it, is what people use now, and, yeah. and what Holmes started to use. I think arsenic was popular in France, but it was just so gotcha. toxic for yeah. people doing it. Um, what share of dead people in America who are buried are embalmed? Uh, almost all. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge majority of the people who are buried are, are and, embalmed. And is that mostly for viewing purposes then? Is that yeah, the idea? Well, yes. And that's, but that's, it's mostly now, I think, 
it's not something that people think about. It's just such a, a rote tradition that mm. it's just, sure, that's mm. what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, AJ Jacobs, this has been a chipper conversation with Andrew <laughs> Meredith, uh, but fascinating, and I feel we've learned a lot. Um, is there anything you want to dispute, add to, et cetera? Well, embalming is legitimately one of my favorite topics, so I do, <laughs> I do want to add two small things. The first is that embalming does not need to be gross. It can be delicious. There's Alexander the Great's corpse was shipped back in a barrel of honey, and Admiral Nelson's was pickled in brandy. Yeah. Mm, yummy. Second, I want to mention what my favorite embalming story of all time, which is uh, this brilliant British dentist in the 1800s named Martin Van Butchel. And when Martin's wife died, he embalmed her, dressed it in a lace gown, and put the body on display in their home. That, Aw, monogamy. Yeah, isn't that sweet? <laughs> His wife was a wealthy woman, and she said that Martin could only have access to her money while she was above ground. <laughs> AJ Jacobs, thank you, and Andrew Meredith, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Great job. Stay with us. There's more stuff you didn't know. When we return, we'll talk about everything we've learned tonight. And yes, we will pick a winner. That is right after this break. Welcome back. Our theme tonight is Womb to Tomb. Would you please welcome our next guest, Amanda Levinson. Come on up, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Who are you? What do you do? Hi, I'm a graduate student getting my PhD in clinical psychology at Stony Brook University, and I do clinical neuroscience research using EEG. EEG, so it's brainwaves, but not MRI, right? Right, so exactly. What's, what do you? What's the difference in the data? Just curiously. Sure. So um, EEG is a way of looking at brain activity at the level of the scalp. So we've got these swim cap-like things with electrodes built in all up and down them that we put on people. Um, And the kind of research that I do with EEG specifically looks at these really well-studied, well-defined peaks and dips in the normal sort of wavy pattern of the electrical activity, and they correspond to particular kinds of mental events. So the research that I'm going to be talking about today um, uses EEG to look at something called the reward positivity, or the rupee for short, and it's a little peak that people get after they get a reward. And interestingly, you get the same little peak after you watch someone else win a reward. Really? Yes, you do. No, I mean, it must vary depending on your relationship to the person. You know them, you don't know them, et cetera. Exactly, yeah. So if it's a friend, you'll have a bigger peak to watching them win a reward than you would to a stranger. Um, So if it's just a little, like, swim cap with wires and whatnot... mm -hmm. It doesn't sound, you know, super specific. So when you say that people get the same reaction watching someone else get a reward, how do you know that it's not jealousy, for instance? Well, um, I think that comes from all of the underlying research on these responses to rewards, that we really know they do only come when you get something good and you get a very different looking response when you, say, lose money or have something negative happen to you, like seeing someone you're jealous of win something. All right. So, um, Amanda, the theme is womb to tomb. What does your research tell us about any major life event? 
Sure. So um, the study I'm going to talk about today is about the empathic rupee in the brains of parents watching their kids win and lose money. So we had 44 pairs of parents and their preteen or teenage kids come in and they did a computer gambling task where they watched each other win and lose money. Um, And we recorded brain activity in both participants the, the whole time. And we also had parents rate themselves on their style of parenting. So how harsh they were, how supportive they were, how often they used certain types of punishment. Um, and we found that parents who rated themselves higher on authoritarian parenting, um, which is a harsh my way or the highway approach to parenting, also had blunted empathic responses to watching their kids receive a reward. Parents who call themselves harsh or authoritarian parents are less excited for their children when their children get a good thing? So I I can't go quite that far. I mean, this is a brain response that happens 300 milliseconds after the reward pops up on the screen. So this is just an immediate brain reaction to watching their child receive a reward. Um, But it did seem like the higher your harsh parenting style, the smaller your empathic response. So, But could it just be that authoritarian parents don't approve of gambling? Uh. Uh, That's an idea. (laughs) That's possible. They're they're like, get this kid out of the casino. (laughs) She's learning not to work hard for a daily fare. (laughs) They're old-timey newsmen, I guess, when they do this study. And, um, okay, so the parents rated themselves on a scale from easygoing to authoritarian. Right. Mm -hmm. So what's the correlation between how a parent or anyone rates themselves on that kind of scale to how they actually are on that kind of scale? In other words, how much do we trust the answers? I mean, it's a great question, and there have been lots of studies where we use multiple measures to try and confirm. So we'll have parents rate themselves and also the kids rate them, and usually those things correspond pretty well. Or we'll have parents rate themselves, and then we'll have a psychologist observe them interact with their kids in another room. Alexandra, your parents, how would they rate on the authoritarian scale? Oh, man, I think they would think that they were pretty authoritarian, Mm. but... But you knew better. Well, I would just go around them. (laughs) Would the kids do better if their parents were authoritarian or was there no correlation? So one of the reasons why parenting is something we even study in a clinical psychology program is that parenting is really important for mental health. And we found that compared to the more common, more supportive, typical style of parenting, authoritarian parents tend to have kids who have a whole bunch of negative outcomes, including higher rates of mental illness, um, they perform worse in school, they have worse social outcomes, and they can even have negative health outcomes like higher rates of obesity. So you sound like you have fun doing what you do. What else have you studied? Yeah, so um, most of the research I've worked on have looked at electrocortical signals (laughs) that are most linked to depression. So rupee is one of those, and, and you can sort of see why that might be the case, that individuals who are predisposed to depression also tend to be less responsive to rewards. Oh, man, oh, that, that's not cool of our brains to do that. Yeah, no, it's pretty unfair. Like, what, what an evil cycle. Is. <laughs> it's just like, oh, you're going to be sad, and also we'll make it harder for you to fix that. <laughs> 
or it gives us a clue about where we could possibly intervene. If you can make people more responsive to reward, maybe they'd be less likely to have depression. Yes. Hey. So is anybody looking at trying to um, understand parenting, um, you know, either styles or yeah. reactions and try to use that therapeutically somehow then? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a few very well-studied evidence-based um, parenting therapies that specifically intervene at the level of the parent to try and get better outcomes for the kids. Um, and the thing that these therapies have in common is that they generally try to increase the response to positive things that parents have and decrease the response to negative well, things. No offense, that sounds a little bit on the obvious side. It right? certainly does, but yeah. it's harder to, to harder do. Harder to do. So how yeah. do you do it then? Uh, I'm working on a study right now where I'm one of the study therapists, um, and we're specifically targeting the types of things that parents say to their kids. So we're not really trying to change the behaviors all that much. Gotcha. So we try to increase parents simply observing non-judgmentally what their kids are doing. So just almost like they're a sports commentator, mm. um, just saying, oh, you're picking up the blocks now and you're putting right. the green and blue together. AJ Jacobs, uh, Amanda's been telling us about harsh parents and the ramifications potentially thereof. What more can you tell us? Well, I I did once write an article on uh, the history of parenting. So harsh parents (laughs) were kind of the norm for most of human history. And if you read the parenting books from the 1800s, which I highly recommend, they, uh, (laughs) they say don't don't play with your babies, don't touch your babies, and certainly don't kiss them. That was the worst. There was one that said, we most strongly protest against the haphazard, promiscuous kissing of babies. (laughs) I will say that there was one parenting technique that we might want to look into, which was uh, opium. That was, uh, (laughs) there was lots of children's medicine that was laced with opium, and it it came in lozenges, too, if you... uh, if your kids prefer sucking their opium. (laughs) AJ, thank you. And Amanda Levinson, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Would you please welcome our final contestant, Ruth Finkelstein. Hi there, Ruth. What do you do? Hi. Well, I'm just a plain old professor of public health oh. um, at Columbia. It's a real um, thing. At the, yeah, yeah, at the Columbia Aging Center. The Aging Center. Yeah. Okay, womb to tomb. So yep, just yep. pre-tomb. Yep. Okay. Pre-tomb, <laughs> post-womb. So what's your thing? My thing is that actually <laughs> aging doesn't have to suck. <laughs> it's... Yeah. <laughs> it, It's that the world isn't designed right. And this is one of these classic sort of blame the victim scenarios where, you know, I mean, we don't put little kids in adult desks, you know, in your office and say, what's wrong with those little kids? They can't even, like, touch the floor with their, you know, shoes. (laughs) Um, We've designed the world completely for a specific age group, actually, people of reproductive age mm. is about where the world's designed. And then we blame old people because they can't do anything or they can't do it right. And actually, it's perfectly possible to make minor modifications in the world so that we can li- live full, rich lives for much longer. Some of my favorite ideas in the world are the ones that are 
obvious in retrospect, but until someone says them, you know, you don't really think about it so much. So can you talk about, you say there are adjustments. I'm yeah. sure some of them are easier than others. Right. Um, what do you suggest? We base what we do on talking to old people, but it occurred to us that we didn't actually know the world through the perspective of old people. And so one of the, like, just kind of simple things that you wouldn't have known, we found out that people were longing to go back to the swimming pools of Mm. their youth. Contrary to popular belief, people age in place. It's not the case that most people move somewhere else. Most people age where they grew up. And so in New York, we talked to these people who were like, I want to go swimming, but I can't go swimming anymore. We're like, well, why can't you go swimming anymore? Oh, the pool's completely full of kids, and I, and I have to, I'm not allowed to wear a cover off, and it's just a completely impossible situation. We're sort of like, well, geez, that doesn't seem like a completely impossible situation. And so we talked to the parks commissioner with a bunch of these people and discovered that in the morning there's swim classes. And it's pretty easy to put the swim classes at one end of the pool and put senior swim at the other mm-hmm. end of the pool. Mm-hmm. And so in the morning you can have a time in the swimming pool where kids aren't jumping, you know, doing cannonballs off your back. Um, (laughs) And it was shown that the people who went swimming um, were happier and they were healthier and they were more connected to each other. I mean, you can think about everything in this way. So you can think about work in this way. Um, There is no reason to kick people out of the workplace because they hit 65, when the retirement age of 65 was first developed, life expectancy was 30 years shorter than it is today. So we haven't changed retirement age, even though we're living 30 years longer. And so instead, all of a sudden, you're working, you're working, you're working, And then we boot you out, you fall off this cliff, and you're responsible for yourself for this 30-year vacation. And then, again, we blame the victim. Like, why don't they know what to do with themselves for 30 years? Do you think one reason that firms are not as encouraging of older employees is because those employees are taking such long swimming breaks? Probably, (laughs) yeah. So, so what other other accommodations we could make in terms of like raising the retirement age and like getting the kids out of the pool? Like, should we also make restaurants quieter and things? Well, you know, I notice in New York, restaurants have gotten so dark that they now hand out flashlights um, to read the menu. But I think like bright enough to read the menu would be okay. Um, I mean, that 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 wouldn't kill the mood that much. Um, I feel that's a turning point in life when you first have to take out your iPhone and put on the light (laughs) to read the menu. It happened to me like five years ago. Yeah. And there's all kinds of things. Like, for example, um, old people kept getting killed um, as pedestrians, right? And that's not necessary. And it's not good. And it only takes minor modifications to intersections 
to make that fatality rate go down dramatically. You know, we hear about this a lot, right? Disrespecting elders that people used to uh, pay a lot more attention, but in the last, I guess, century or so, much less so. But who's really reversing that? Yeah, I don't actually think it's so much about respect. And I actually don't think it's so much about accommodation. I think it's about design. Mm. There's this thing called Age-Friendly Cities. The World Health Organization designed it. There's like 300 of them. New York's one. Washington's one. One trend that has happened in the world that no one saw coming was the urbanization of the world, right? Exactly. I mean, is, is that related in any way? People are living longer. Cities are probably a much easier place to live if you're living longer? Yes, Cities are a fabulous place to live if you're living longer for multiple reasons. Um, In the U.S., about 80% of old people live in cities um, right now. Lots of them have good public transportation. They have sidewalks so that you can actually get around. Sidewalks are actually critical. Mm -hmm. Sidewalks and benches make, that's an example of design features that make the world work Mm -hmm. for um, older people. Mm -hmm. Now, the challenge, there are challenges in cities too. Affordability is obviously a challenge in the global cities like New York and Washington. And um, walk-up, tenements um, are a problem too and we have to work a lot on how we're going to retrofit. Ruth, um, if you could prescribe, would you prescribe that most people, since we're all living longer, work a lot longer and if so, for what reasons? Well, this is a complicated question because since the way we've been living for the last generation or two is that all we do as adults is work and raise our kids. We've kind of let our other capacities and interests and hobbies and civic engagement and so on fall by the wayside. And so our whole identity is tied up in working. And then when you stop, you don't have have the network that you would. Mm -hmm. Now, I actually think we should all be living in a different way where we're kind of mixing in a lot more time for traveling and caring and sabbatical and learning and like the whole idea. But we haven't. Gotcha. AJ Jacobs, um, aging does not have to suck, Ruth Finkelstein (laughs) Agree? Uh, I do agree. I think people can and should work until they're much older. The, the oldest working barber in the world is Anthony Mancinelli in New York, 106 years old. There's a, a botanist in Australia who's 103, a YouTuber in India who's 106. I didn't know that was a job. So, uh, yeah, that made me feel pretty bad. <laughs> AJ, thank you. And Ruth, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Can we please give one more hand to all our guests tonight? Our live audience is about to pick a winner, but first, Alexandra Petri, AJ Jacobs, and I will each weigh in just for kicks. Remember the criteria, everybody. Did our guests tell us something we truly did not know? Was it worth knowing, and was it demonstrably true? Alexandra, 
I'm just really curious to know what most impressed you tonight, what surprised you, etc. Oh, man, everything impressed and surprised me. I was constantly flabbergasted. Um, <laughs> but I have to say, I was fascinated by what Amanda said about parenting, and I want to corner her after the show and be like, how do you parent correctly? Because she's got some data at her fingertips, which I found uh, quite intriguing. Um, but I also liked the womb with a view we had going on uh, with the pregnancy test. And also... As a millennial who's constantly on the receiving end of people saying, you know, you're, the, you're what's wrong with society. You're eating too many avocado toasts and you'll never get a house. It was nice to hear that other people in society have complaints as well and that it's set up harshly for people who aren't just the much maligned think piece receiving end crowd. Um. <laughs> Is that like a millennial stereotype, avocado toast? Is that the... Yeah. Really? Oh, my God. If you I... have to ask, you're clearly I, Gen X. I am. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being old, as Nothing we know. Nothing wrong with being old. AJ That's Jacobs, right. we learned that. What else did we learn that tickled you? Well, I, I do feel very paternal towards Ross, so I do want to make clear that his book is not all about castration. That's just a small part <laughs> of it. Um, but I was fascinated, too, with the pregnancy test. I guess I can't use them, right? You, but, uh, you could. It just wouldn't really do a lot, I gather. <laughs> but also, yeah, embalming. I want to give embalming a shout-out. Yeah, out. absolutely. I also thought that um, Andrew Meredith's presentation, I don't care who died, I feel better already. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to say, if I had a favorite, I think... Um, you know, Ruth Finkelstein talking about making the world more hospitable for older people, there is something about having an issue framed in a way that you kind of latch onto, and then that turns your brain into having other ideas about it. So I really, I really appreciated that. But um, I appreciated the heck out of everybody tonight. So once again, thank you so very much. As you know, however, there can only be one winner. And so you've heard from us, but you guys are the ones who pick the winner, so it's time to do that. So, who will it be? Ross Benish with Military Monogamy, Sarah Rottenberg with Bringing Privacy to the Pregnancy Test, Andrew Meredith with, we'll call that one, My Sweet Embalmable You, <laughs> Amanda Levinson with Harsh Parents, or Ruth Finkelstein with Designing the World for Older People. Please take out your phones, follow the texting instructions on the screen. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word, give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to listen to this show without ads, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. Thank you. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thanks to all our guest presenters. Our winner tonight, Ruth Finkelstein... Aging does not have to suck. Thank you so much, and congratulations. Ruth, to commemorate your victory, we'd like to present you with this Certificate of Impressive Knowledge. It reads, I, Stephen Dubner, in collaboration with Alexandra Petri and A.J. Jacobs, do solemnly swear that Ruth Finkelstein told us something we did not know for which we are eternally grateful. That is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you did not know. A huge thanks to Alexandra, AJ, to our guests, and thanks to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. I 
And on next week's episode, we'll be learning about teeth, the stock market, and fantasy sports. My co-host is the comedian Hari Kondabolu. So what music is good for the market right now? <laughs> Follow-up question, should Miley Cyrus be stopped? <laughs> <laughs> That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Rachel Jacobs, Nathan Rossborough, and David Herman, who also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tell me. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Listener.